Galilee, and it came, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, we explained to you that this having to pass through Samaria was because his spirit was so in sync with the spirit of his father that he knew this was divinely ordained. It's not a territory that Jews ordinarily ventured into. I explained that last week. They went around it, but Jesus went straight through it. And he came to a, a city of Samaria called Sychar. It's a parcel, parcel of ground there that Jacob, hundreds of years before, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, wearied from his journey, our Lord and his human side got tired, just like you and I get tired. And he was sitting thus by the well. It was about noon, the sixth hour. Then there came a woman from Samaria. People weren't out running around in the middle of the day so much. She came to draw water. This was providential. So many things that God does around us, they're providential. They're divinely ordained. This was divinely ordained. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, please. His disciples had gone away into the city to find food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, I'm curious, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, ask me, a Samaritan woman of all people, to give you a drink? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus wasn't bothered by their prejudice. It wasn't his. Jesus answered and said to her, I'm paraphrasing just for a little more clarity, lady. If you had any idea, if you had one clue about who was asking you for a drink, this would have been a reverse situation. You would have said, sir, please give me water to drink, living water. So she said in verse 11, sir, you don't even, she's taking everything literally. Jesus is speaking figuratively. You don't have a thing to draw with. This well is deep, which Jesus knew. So where do you get that living, that life-giving water? Surely you're not professing to be somebody greater. She didn't know the half of it than our father Jacob. He gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Dear, everyone who drinks of this water in this well will thirst again, as always. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give, now peaks her interest. The water I shall give him shall never thirst, and the water that I give to him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So it is for every one year. The woman said to him, she's being a little sarcastic, I think. She said, well, sir, give me this water <clears throat> so I'll not ever again be thirsty and not have to come here every day to draw water. Jesus said to her, well, I'll tell you before I do that, go call your husband. She said, uh, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you got that right. You've had five. 
and the guy you're living with is not your husband. Then uh, she did a double take. She probably stepped back a little. She looked at him and said, Sir, I perceive that you're some kind of prophet. Then she tries to divert things. She wants to get into a sectarian controversy between Jews and Samaritans. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in that mountain in Jerusalem is where we're supposed to worship. So there's not much use to continue this conversation. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We've got our place, we do our thing, we have our traditions. But Jesus doesn't drop the subject. He said, lady, believe me, an hour is coming when in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. All of that is about to become obsolete. Then Jesus, I pointed out to you last week, he doesn't let it off the hook. He doesn't try to be politically correct or religiously correct with her. He's straightforward. A good lesson for us all. Well, we're not going to do all that again. You people worship, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Basically, your religion is rooted in ignorance, which it was. We Jews worship that which we know. It's the truth. Salvation is from the Jews, not from the Samaritans. An hour is coming, lady, and it now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, Look, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, both of them were on common ground at that point. And when that one comes, well, he'll straighten all this out, won't he? Jesus said, yes, he will. He said, he said to her, breaking news. I, the one who's speaking to you, I am that person. Rot your socks, drop your teeth. Verse 27, at this point, the disciples came. Verse 27, they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, they knew Jesus well enough not to question him too much. No one said to him, why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot, water pot and she went into the city. Now, this lady was a witness, and that's what we're talking about in this passage. She went into the city. She had just had a guy who just blew her socks off. She goes into the city, and she said, verse 29, you guys are not going to... She was a woman who was comfortable with men. You can tell. She went into the city and she said, hey guys, I got something to tell you. Said, I just met somebody out here in the fields where Jacob's well is. He told me everything that I had ever done. 
this is not the Messiah, is it? She was very cautious. Couldn't be, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him to eat. Now we'll kind of pick up there. Jesus said to them, Look, guys, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, Did somebody bring him a Big Mac? And Jesus said to them, Look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Stop right there. I brought this up last week. We were toward the end of the message. I was having to rush, and I'm never comfortable in that kind of context. But I want to reiterate the point that I made last week in a little different words. We see that the Lord Jesus' passion and purpose in his earthly life, he is the Son of God, He is the Son of Man, and the mystery of His being we cannot fully comprehend. But He was dealing with His disciples and dealing with the world as the Son of Man. He got hungry and He got tired, just like all of us do. Walked dusty roads and it's hot. Come noontime, He wanted to eat and He wanted to drink, and the disciples did too. So they run out to get food. Jesus never invoked his deity in order to solve his own problems. He lived life just like you and I do. It's important that you understand that because you might read this and say, well, he's the son of God. These things didn't affect him the way they Yes, they did. He made it that way. If he had pain, it affected him just like it affects you. If he was hungry, it affected him just like it affects you. All of these problems we deal with, except sin, he had to deal with just like we dealt with. And that's what makes this, always has made this so significant to me. So let me just kind of run through it and apply it once again to us because it's one of the most important lessons in this whole narrative. They said, they came back with their food And they said to Jesus, "Uh, Lord, eat up. We're all hungry. Let's sit here and just have a little banquet around the well. And Jesus says, tell you the truth, guys, I'm not up for that right now. I've got better things to do than sit around a picnic table and eat. And they said, Did somebody bring him a lunch while we were gone? They couldn't quite figure because they were famished. And they figured he would be too. I have food, verse 32, to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him something to eat, did they? Then Jesus amplifies verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, there we are. And what has always struck me as long as I've been teaching the Word of God when I come to this passage is how consumed Jesus was with the mission and purpose and priorities 
of his father's work. One of the most frustrating things, and sometimes I condemn myself, but one of the most frustrating things I see in our modern world and what I'll just call our church world, which is not necessarily Christian, is what I call casual Christianity. That we're not so invested in doing what the Lord has caused us to do. We just have our own priorities and our own purposes, and if any given time they set in, then what would most honor the Lord? What would be his priorities? We just set aside and do ours. That's uh, it's not a good picture. There's no spirit of I have food to eat. You don't know anything about. Now look, let's have a little reality here. I get tired and I need to go to bed just like you do, and ordinarily I do go to bed. Sometimes I don't sleep. Did last night, by the way. But sometimes... We just, we just want to go play. But we play entirely too much. Everybody needs a vacation. We take entirely too many of them. We retire. Got all the time in the world. Got all the strength in the world. Not everybody, but some do. And... We do our own thing too much of the time. I see it as a pastor, and I look at this. Here, sometimes we've got strength, we've got time, we've got resources. But we're so self-centered with them. I said, I think in passing in a recent sermon, I mentioned retirement. Some of you out there have had or still have miserable jobs. You get treated miserably. At least you think. It's probably true. And, oh, you can't wait for the day you get out of it. You've never had a chance to travel. Some of you. And you and your wife think, okay, next week is my last week, thank God. You buy a camper and take off and you go, you know, who knows where. That's not necessarily wrong. Not necessarily wrong. But I always wonder, well, can't we adjust that a little bit? Can't we say, hey, Ma, Let's take off and go to Maine and then go to the Carolinas and then go to Florida and then come back by way of Texas. Avoid California. Do whatever you could do. Avoid California. Go around that and come on back to Oregon, maybe go up to Washington. Yeah, that's a long vacation. Overdue. But do we have to repeat that and repeat that and repeat that? There's the work of God to be done. 
we are now in position to come back to the family of God and to get ourselves totally invested in the work of the Lord. I I just wonder about it. Jesus said, I have food to eat you. This is my food. Well, they would say to him, what would they say today? But Lord, you're going to burn out. You're not going to burn out. Let me tell you something about burnout. I think I know. I don't profess to know all things. I think I know this. People burn out in a job when too much of the job they don't like. Then that makes them hate it all. You're not going to burn out doing something you love. I've spent a lot of my career working long, long hours. And I've heard from way back, Jim, you're going to burn out. Never come close to burning out because I love what I do. Not every day. There are days when people people make me hate what I do. (laughs) Oh, gee, had my grandson Alex call me over the weekend and say, Grandpa, you told me about this. And I said, what's that, Alex? He says, one of those days, (laughs) one of those days, they're driving me crazy. And apparently there was a domestic abuse situation he had to deal with. Yeah, you have those days. Folks, we need to realize we're too American. We're too soft. God has called us to his purpose and to his passion. Let me tell you something about passion. Where does passion come from? It comes, the roots of it comes from conviction. Conviction about things. Conviction about God's things. And that's what drives passion. This is what I want to do. Well, I would say to all of us, whatever age you are, reach down, grab hold of your Christian convictions and find some passion. What's important in the end? Look at your life. How much of it is being invested in what is important? What is eternally important? Look at that and get invested in that. Get invested in his purpose. So many things that we're all wrapped up in are our purposes. They're not his passions and his purposes. I'd just like for you to think about that. I'd like I'd like for Lake not to be a church, but a different church. And listen, we have a lot of people around here who are there. Who are there. I can't believe some of the things I hear. You embarrass me. When I see what you do, you're lay people and you just get up and go do it. You spend time and even some of your money just caring for people. It's it's amazing to me. So that's something that I think all of us need to look at and just recapture. Just not being comfortable, casual Christians who make it out to church about half the time on Sunday morning. Oh, I think today, if this is your name, I don't mean you. Myrtle and I need to just 
grab our bikes and go here, there, and everywhere. Get over it. Find God's passion. Find God's purpose. Find God's people. And be there. Well, that was big. There's something else I want you to notice. Just barely touched on the hem of it last Sunday. And that's this. I want you to notice in this text as it moves on. Let me read. See something very important. Jesus told him at verse 35, there are yet four months to harvest. What's he talking about? He's just been talking about having something to do, that they food to eat they knew not of. Then comes the harvest. Let me kind of draw a picture for you here. Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're standing around. Lord, don't you need to eat? He didn't say this, but this is what he meant. He said, he virtually went back to Deuteronomy and he said, look, man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Look, I'm not going to die of starvation. I'm not going to go hungry doing God's work. If my father in heaven says you live, you live. Don't talk to me about burnout. If my father in heaven says you're hungry, but you're going to live. Do my work. Do what I've called you to do. Do it. You'll live. You'll make it. Man does not live by bread alone. It's what I've told you all through this COVID thing. Where's my mask? I saw a guy in Westland in a big black truck, Mike. No, no less coming out, coming out of Westland, safe as he could possibly be. And he had a black mask. He might have had three of them on. He and his wife. And I just thought, of course, he didn't know this, I'm sure. Hey, bud, man does not live by mask alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And if the Lord means me to live, I'm going to live, mask or no mask. Just do what God has called you to do. Now, I make some exceptions. I can't always have time to do that. Don't always have time to, to make these exceptions because I've got to move on. There are some people who are in dire living situations and somebody's health is just like that on the margin, a wife or a child or something like that. Well, we do have, even with flu season, colds, we've got to be careful. But most are not like that. Well, that's what Jesus was saying in effect. That's what he said in the Mount of Temptation. Satan says, you're hungry, man. Command these rocks. You turn them into food. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And if God says you're going to live, you are going to live. So we've got to get hold of that concept. And Jesus says, I was sent to do a work, and I'm going to do that work. It sustains me, just doing what the Father wants me to do, and it will sustain us. You're not going to burn out unless you hate what you're doing. It's not going to burn you out. 
There was a story I'm sure many of you have heard, but it's still very good in this situation. I think, oh, I got to take a break. I got to take a break. Every time I hear that, I know somebody's almost out the door. I got to take a break. Can't take it anymore. You must hate what you're doing. A missionary came across a little boy in some other country, and he was carrying a kid on his back. Every time he saw that boy, he saw him carrying that kid. The missionary went up to him and he said, Son, doesn't it get awfully heavy carrying him around? Oh, no, sir. He's my brother. Oh, no, sir, it's the work of God. Oh, no, sir, this is what God called me to. But you're working 80 hours a week, and I love it all. Just doing what the Lord called us to. I used to see my now deceased brother-in-law, and I... He had more health issues in the hospital. And uh, he was an upper-level executive with the Bayer Corporation, German. And so quite busy. He took his job very seriously, what he was getting paid for. But then once that was over, you couldn't believe the things that he did for the Lord outside of work hours. Like I say... There are illustrations of that in this room and in the past. People have long since moved away, but I've seen it, and it gives me joy as a pastor. We need to recover some of that, get past this American softness, and get past this idea, okay, I'm about ready to retire. Thank God I'm gone. Why do that? You got to retire when you were 65, let's just say, when so many do. Why do that? Now you're free to do everything that everybody wanted you to do that you couldn't do while you worked. Let's ask God to give us a sense of the passion and purpose of what we're here for. And nothing will bring you more joy if you love the Lord than getting invested in that and seeing the fruits of it. Now that brings up the second point that I want to make. It's right here at the end. Let me get my glasses on so I can possibly read. They're dirty enough that I may not. I haven't cleaned them in four weeks. (laughs) I see all kinds of things out there. Well, Jesus goes on and he he says to these guys, Uh, as he's looking out in the fields, the wheat fields are grown up and there are the wheat fields, but all of a sudden he sees something out in the wheat fields. He sees all these, something moving. Well, what would these Samaritans have had on? White robes. And so here they come. They've been talking to this woman. They're believing. God has done that. They're believing. And here they come to Jesus through the wheat fields. And so this is the connection here. 
Jesus says in verse 35, there are yet four months and then comes a harvest. You know that, I know that. Behold, I say to you guys, look up, look out there. What do you see? Look at the fields. They are white for harvest. He says, here come these people who have believed on the basis of her word and they're walking through the fields. It's a harvest. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Wow. Jesus says there's a work of God going on here. And we're here, you, my disciples, we're about to reap what others have sown. He doesn't say who the others was and that's who the others were. And that's, that's good. What I want you to notice is the, is the interdependency of God's work in harvesting people. I want you to notice that. I see it all the time. Very rarely when somebody comes to Christ, very rarely is that the work of one human being that God is using. Usually when you get the backstory. If you look at it, it's like this story. There were other influences behind the scenes, maybe going all the way back to the prophets. Those were seeds that had been there, which God used when Jesus came along to just kind of germinate right at that time. And here they came through the fields. They had believed that was a work of God. I don't make anybody believe. You don't make anybody believe. But there are influences that come together and they came together at this time. So the disciples here are about to harvest a great crop of Samaritans. Unbelievable. They were a hard case. And yet they come flowing to Jesus through the fields in those white robes. It was an amazing thing. Just about every time somebody comes to Christ, when I get a little more of the story, I find behind that were some other people that they knew in Zambia or somewhere. Somebody had had some input long before that and here they come to Christ. It's kind of amazing. So remember this, folks. We're all sitting together here in this auditorium. The vast majority of you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may feel unfruitful and ineffective. But I, at least from my perspective, I know better. I watch you. I watch my congregation. I watch my sheep. I see much that happens. And I see some of you doing things that you don't think matters for dip. But it does matter. And God uses it to bring people eventually to Christ. I see some of you out there being just what you are. It's no game. It's no fake. You're just very friendly and warm people. You're people who feel responsible. We've got a triangle out there that says a church where people care and truth matters. Oh, truth matters so much. But care matters so much. There are people in this church who reach out to others all the time and reach out to, to unbelievers all the time. 
And those influences eventually just add up. Not only in people coming to know Christ, but in people getting built up in Christ. Some of you go teach. Some of you teach in Nawana. Some of you teach in Vacation Bible School. Well, in the churches where I grew up, we never had Awana, but we did have, say, Vacation Bible School. Aussie, my wife, will tell you that one of the first influences that brought her to Christ was a Vacation Bible School. She didn't grow up in a Christian family. I'm sure the teachers, whoever they were, they're probably dead now. Like me, I'm half dead. <laughs> Wouldn't have a clue that they had that kind of influence. My girls, Christy and Julie, they had these events in their church in Denver. And some of those teachers, they were just special ladies, just good ladies who just cared about the children. Had a tremendous influence on them. Do you realize the kind of world, let's say take children, the kind of world that people are living in, I mean, I don't mean to talk down to you. But it's not a happy world. It's pretty much a hopeless world. And people are mad and angry. Do you realize what it means for you just to go out there as a believer? I can almost tell the believers sometimes when you're cheerful, when you just reach out to people, you can almost see their faces change. And then one day when they find out that you are a believer, that hangs in the mind. God uses that. So just remember the interdependence of the work of Christ. Some of you have one gift. Some of you have another. Some of you go help somebody in distress. And you've got the skills. You've got the ability to help. If somebody's electric out, I can't do one thing. I try to make more juice with my personality, you know, my halo. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I can't do dip. But some of you can. You've got the skills to bring to the situation and go help somebody who's in distress. God uses those things all the time. And sometimes along the, my pastoral way, I find somebody who will say, you know, years ago I had this situation. And that kind of rung a chord with me. And later they found Christ. Never dismiss yourself because you're not a pastor. Whoever you are, God has given you gifts and he's put his spirit within you. And he can use you as an influence. Some of you have been to hell and back. Or maybe you're not even back. <laughs> and, You've got stuff going on, but you're still walking with God. But God has given you a gift whether you realize it or not. And what is that gift? It's that burden. That burden that you carry around. But you carry it around joyfully. And God uses that because you run into some other person somewhere. And you have a story and you can share it. And they hear that God loves and God cares and God forgives. You've got the, some of you have got a burden because in the past, it wasn't just burdens you poor. You had a burden. You had a sin burden. You had other things. You didn't know. 
you found the love of God. You found a God who steps into your life and does wonderful things, and you can tell people, let me tell you where you were. So that brings us to reiterate the last point that we just brushed over last week. I said it'd take two weeks. Never forget that most of you have a gift in this respect. You have a story to tell. We all do. I look at mine, but I don't have a story to tell. Aussie does. I mean, she, she had a good life in a lot of ways. But I didn't even know this or remember this. One time, her dad, who was very mad about something, and Aussie thought her dad was going to beat her mom to death. And her mom screamed, call the police, he's going to kill me. She's got a gift. That wasn't a happy situation. But sometimes she can talk to people I don't talk to, or maybe I have. She can talk to them and tell them, I've been there. I know exactly what you're talking about. And somebody can relate to you that might not be able to relate to me at all. But then I have a gift. I was raised in a Christian home. I know what it is to have two wonderful parents who love each other and who love all their kids. Not people of means, but it's a gift because I can share with parents what it means, what it means to know Christ and to raise your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and to see them grow up and serve God and glorify him. A lot of parents don't take their job seriously. They just want to just kind of coast along, just think about bringing them to church and sitting them down in some seat somewhere. They're going to get it by osmosis. My parents never did that. They were conscientious, both of them, in making sure that they raised their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And it's a gift to share others what God can do. And so those kids have a better chance than they ordinarily would of coming to know the true and the living God. And so we grew up that way, Aussie and I did. Both of our kids came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, once too ill to have children, but the others raised two children. We've got great-grandkids and grandkids that know the Lord, that have Christian parents, that have Christian spouses. And we've got little ones that I hope will come along the same way. It all began back here with my parents and then her parents after they came to know Christ. It's a gift. God gives us these gifts and we can use them. It's a complicated thing in what God uses to bring people to know him. And it's seldom just one person, seldom. Sometimes, most of you know I have a radio program, but sometimes I hear people talk about, well, I heard such and such a person on a radio program. And then they got in a church, around a church, some Christian people somewhere, and somebody came into their situation, and the Lord used that to trigger their conversion. Just all kinds of things like that. Never undervalue yourself. Never understate the influence that God might give you, just a little thing. That's why I've always told the staff, and they're pretty good at it, as they're able to be. When people walk in that door out there, 
You don't know what kind of burdens are walking in that door. Somebody may be coming in out of the cold, just trying after 20 years. Maybe I could go back to church again. But doubtful about the reception they'll receive. You don't know how many people tell us. Well, I went to this church and that church. Nobody spoke to me. Nobody. We try to make sure, as sure as we can, that doesn't happen here. And we ask you, you don't know what it can mean. You don't know how the Spirit of God may use that if you. You don't know these folks from Adam. Sometimes I don't. They walk in the door. You say, hi, how are you? You say, oh, they may have been here for months. Get over that. Lots of times I have to go back. I'm the pastor and go back and ask, what's your name again? Because one of these days I'm going to get old. I realize that now. I may not be able to remember. <laughs> no, I'm there, so I can't remember so easily. You don't know how those things count. I used to see our pastor in Denver. People observe, people watch. You don't realize how this stuff counts, how people add it up in their heads. In our church, it was a large church. Not the largest on the planet, but it was a large church. Our pastor was a man who could whip. He wasn't big. He could whip a bear with a switch. He was a man's man. But when people would come in that church on Sunday morning, there's just a big flow. A lot of the people, oh, a good percentage of the people in there had money. And a few had big money. They were known all the way from Denver to New York to Dallas and that kind of thing. Well, it was a cold Sunday morning and I was over here on one of the heaters in the lobby. I was sitting there resting my bones and getting my bottom warm. And I saw a man coming toward me. His name was Jerry Von Frelick. He was big in the world of business. And he knew me, and I wasn't big in the world of business. But I saw him coming toward me, and uh, I got up to greet his respectful greeting. Say, hi, Jerry, how are you? I was no sooner out of my seat than I said, Andrews, you idiot. Why did you get up? to greet him. Not that that was out of place, but if it been a little old lady, been somebody poor, no name, would you have just instinctively done that? Probably not. And then I looked at our pastor. I'm talking about the gifts you have and the things that make all the difference in the world, believers to unbelievers. I saw Bob. Bob didn't have a bit of pretense in him. And uh, guys like Jerry Von Frelick, and there were a few others, on Sundays he ignored. They could get to him anytime they wanted to. He could get to them. He paid no attention to them. But where was Bob? Were there little old ladies on Social Security, lonely men and others? And there was Bob over there. And I'd seen him put his arm around some little old lady. 
Well, hi, Mildred, how are you doing today? All that kind of thing. And like I did, I stand out in the lobby. And uh, then he would, uh, about 15 minutes into the service, he would come in. Where would he go? The children were over here where Aussie sits. So he would go down and sit with the children. And I said, I probably the only one in that church noticed that. I said, man, that's awesome. So after I was at Lake for a while, I called him. He passed away a year or two years ago. I called him and I said, Bob, I want to thank you. You shaped my ministry. You didn't know it, but I saw that. And there have been many people who have been helped because of a habit that I saw in him. So I'm not going to come in this church, go to a back room with a couple of elders, and we have a prayer meeting. I pray before I get here. We have a prayer meeting. I'm not going to go in there and worship pastor. Brian doesn't do that. Ask me to come in here. Jim, you need to come in here. You know, worship with the people. I said it starts out there. That's where it starts. So I'm going to be there. Don't expect me to come in there on the front row before the service starts. It's those little things that I see in you, I see in many of our people that make a difference. And some here have probably been drawn to Christ. You can cite situations like that. Little things mean a lot. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be a pastor. Just those little things. You can make somebody feel comfortable. Some, and then they come in and they sit down and have a whole different mental attitude. It's more, they're more receptive. So God can use what he's given you. And be sure you use what he's given you. And look to upgrade your connection with his passion and with his purpose. Remember what you're here for. You're dying. We're all wilting on the vine. We're a little deader now than we came in here. Remember, this world does not last, but we've got eternity. And you want to put money in that bank. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the example of our Lord Jesus. What a wonderful example it is, our Father. We're not perfect. We're not about to be perfect. We're not going to be perfect until he returns. But meanwhile, we have the same purpose. Help us to have the same passion. And help us, our Father, to value what you've given us, all of the gifts that we don't think of as gifts that can be used for the glory of God, for causing others to get an ear and to listen to the outpouring of the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.